Hello, and welcome to the Baba Yaga Project. Before we start this episode and really this whole season, we have a brief message to share with our listeners. Um, we at the Babiaga Project would like to take a moment to acknowledge the children found at the Kamloops Residential School site. would like to take this moment to urge Canada to make true reconciliation with the First Nations, and we hold the spirits of the children in the light and hope that they have found peace. Hello, and welcome to the Baba Yaga Project. The Baba Yaga Project is a podcast and blog that focuses on the ritualized year, folklore, and history, lovingly researched and recorded by your hosts, Margot and Sonia. Hi, my name is Margot, and I have a master's degree in American history with a focus on Indigenous studies. And I'm Sonia, and I'm doing a PhD in medieval history. Welcome, everybody, back to the second season. Uh, I don't know what that clicky sound was. <laughs> the second, beautiful clicky sound. The second season of the Baba Yaga Project. Air horns, finger guns, fireworks. So this season we're talking about... The ritualized life. So over the course of the year, we'll be moving through um, ideas and conceptions that people have about like stages of life um, that are sort of like culturally ingrained, how those ideas have developed, how they've existed in the past, how people have moved through these stages of life, um, and like coming of age rituals and like rituals surrounding all of these things going to school stuff like that so uh it's gonna be super exciting um we'll be doing it over the course of a whole year so strap on your boots get ready for this buckle buckle up baby <laughs> can get you in tell? that car seat baby <laughs> Can you tell we haven't recorded in a month? Yeah. <laughs> this is so weird. I think so. <laughs> Woo! All this is staying in. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, now that you're in your baby car seat, because we're babies right now. <laughs> do we want to just do this as the four-minute bonus? <laughs> Strap it, baby! <laughs> Get that three-point harness going. <laughs> Roll oh. cage. Okay, yep. no, now, yep. that, now that we're ready, let's go. We're starting off preconception yes. at fertility. And right? infertility. What? All of these things. Yeah. Yep. So, as per usual, I'm going to take it away with our pre-modern civilizations. Then we're going to we're going to pass it back over to Margot who's going to talk about indigenous people yep. and the kind of parallel situation that's going on. Yeah. And then we round it all off at the end. So, let's we're get talk to talk about it. colonialism. It's going to be so fun and cheerful like it always is. Yeah, this is always such a lighthearted, fun podcast. <laughs> but let's first start out with just some general ideas about fertility, infertility. People have lots of feelings about that, lots of ideas. But let's just start out with 
back in the day. Get in the time machine. So, as you probably know, it's Doctor Who. This is too chaotic, even for us. All right. So, back in the day, as you may note, uh, fertility was pretty important to people. As evidenced by, you know, all the all the phallus statues they had everywhere, all the fertility rites, the paintings of people having conjugal visits, you know. They were very excited about, about baby making. Which, it, it makes sense, because until very recently, it was super normal to have lots and lots of kids in your life. Basically, if you were married, you were probably going to have a whole bunch of kids. Like, every two to three years, you'd have another baby. Um, so let's first just bust some myths that people have surrounding children and having children in the past. Yep. I think one of the biggest ones is this idea that people in pre-modern societies had lots of kids because they needed help working on the farm which i mean it's not wrong necessarily but it's not it's not quite right either um for one thing i mean pregnancy and birth and recovery means that the adult woman uh in the family is put out of kind of out of commission for at least some time right like she is not at her full working potential for quite yeah. A while. Uh, plus, uh, a lot of the kids are going to die early on, so they're obviously not going to be helpful on the farm. Uh, plus, even the kids that did survive required way, way more work and care um, and feeding and clothing and diapering and supervising them. Um, like, the, the amount of care that was going into them for those first, like, six-ish years is is far surpassing like any amount of help they could give you so you know it yes like once they got older they could definitely they would definitely be helping you out but it's not necessarily the prime motivator to have a bunch of because you know that's still at least yeah it's a huge upfront investment on that um plus you know if you're living it it's also much more of a like 19th century idea i find when it's like yes it's just ma and pa and the homestead <laughs> on the prairie right like versus in like pre pre-industrial society like yeah. most people are living in villages right like you like you're harvesting as a village you're planting as a village it's not these isolated yeah. nuclear family farms uh, there's also, again, a sort of myth that people had children to care for them in their old age, which, uh, to be clear, yes, there was, and in many ways still is, some expectation that, you know, your kids are going to take care of you, particularly for women. It was, th- there was at least some, like, expectation that your sons are going to take care of you in your old age, in your widowhood. However, again, there's no guarantee that your kids are going to live long men, enough to care for you. Men didn't to worry about who was going to take care of them in their old age because they either no. had their wife yeah. or they were dead. 
because <laughs> yeah 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 men just die easily yeah yeah they were you know sent yeah. to war or kicked by a horse or got in a bar fight died in the mines yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly um and the the other big thing is that even in pre-modern times right like your kids very well could like lots of young adults moved away from their home area because they were in the military or they married and moved far away or they were itinerant yeah. workers or merchants or sailors so like again there's some to to be clear there is some expectation of kids taking care of their parents but it's really not the like yeah. the surefire investment right um, and uh, again, there was a much wider emphasis on neighbors and your yeah. wider community caring for the elderly. So why did people have lots of kids? Uh, I mean, the sh short answer is it was just a normal part of life. Like, it was just accepted and expected that, yeah, if you you got married, you had children. It was a natural process. It was... It was not thought of something that was in, like, super tight, like, human control. It was just kind of part of your cycle of fertility and part of being an adult woman. That, yeah, if you're having sex, you're eventually going to get pregnant. Um, the other big thing is that, obviously, reliable birth control wasn't really a thing. And even if you could have some form of birth control, a lot of your babies and kids were going to die. There's a very high mortality rate in infants and children before, like, you know, the modern era. So that's another big part of why people had lots of kids, because, you know, if 50% of them are going to die before they reach the age of five, like, you know, you maybe yeah, want a fair. few more to make sure that at least some of them live. <laughs> oh, <laughs> That's right. That was my next point was that if you were if you were rich, if you had anything worth handing down, you definitely needed an heir and a spare. You maybe want a few daughters to like marry off to some yeah. other families to make connections, right? Like if you had land, titles, even like just uh if if you're a, a blacksmith and you want to hand down your shop to someone, like yeah, you want to have a kid to give that to. And I think the last thing is that having kids was seen as, like, normal and desired as, like, part of being a member of society, basically, and part of, like, married life and adulthood. So, like, you know, it, it, it's, again, until very recently, like, if you were married and didn't have kids, it was seen as kind of tragic because it's like, oh, no, you have been, like, yeah. you know, like, because it wouldn't have been a choice you know like if you weren't having kids right like you we'll talk about being barren or being whatever right and it's like yeah because it was oh yeah. you like you biologically you are in this situation by the gods <laughs> <laughs> exactly so i think that's kind of a a thing that we can uh we can remember when we talk about this um, and also, the other thing is, people did love and care about their kids, and just a lot of people, like, we, we kind of forget that they were still, like, regular old people. 
you know? Like, yes, obviously there were very different views of, like, childhood development and how is the best way to raise a child, but, like, you can look at the graves of children and see the grave goods that were buried with them and, like, these loving engravings and, you know, letters writing about their kids, toys that were handmade for their kids by even, like, the poorest of the poor. Like, it's just very much, you know, it, it's definitely a far cry from our, yeah. like, helicopter parenting, quote-unquote. But, like, the idea that people just, like, didn't care about them yeah. is also a bit not correct. <laughs> So today, we also want to look at, though, what happens if someone is struggling with fertility, right? Because, again, as we've just talked about, it was seen as normal and natural that if you were married, you would be having kids with some regularity. Um, so how did people understand it when they maybe weren't having kids regularly or weren't having kids at all? And I think that's where we do have to talk now about uh, basically miscarriage, which is very common and it's just a natural part of any childbearing process. Um, you know, about there's different estimates, but you know, we'll say an estimated 20% of pregnancies miscarry. That's normally in the early months, which is you know, a big part of why most people don't announce a pregnancy even today until about the 12-week mark, because before then there's just such a high chance that the pregnancy will be lost. And, you know, for the most part, historically, miscarriages were, like, you just kind of had to take them in stride. They weren't necessarily, like, seen as this tragic thing so much as okay like this is something that has happened that's unfortunate but like you know we can try again and it's fine there's not this you know for the most part it's not seen the way it is today where it's much more much more emotional attachment to that and much more so is seen as like mourning the loss of a child whereas you know, historically, it would have been much more emotionally detached, if if that makes sense. Yeah, or, like, even not, especially, like, the, the most common, uh, like, what we would medically now call miscarriages, where it's within the first eight weeks, like, yeah. wouldn't have even necessarily have been recognized as... A lost pregnancy but a late yeah menstruation yeah and i think that's the other thing is that a lot of the that's a big part of it is that now with these like super early pregnancy tests yeah. right and like you can get ultrasounds so early and like you can see everything and it's this much more emotional investment that's going in right away as compared to you know before this time where it's like oh okay my period is late but you know it was pretty normal to have irregular or late yeah. periods, you know, pre-modern 
era, given that, you know, you maybe didn't have a consistent supply of food or it could be thrown off by strenuous labor or by stress or by any other number of things. So, yes, there was basically... A, the fact that for a lot of the time, you would not even realize that it was a miscarriage. And even in the cases where the pregnancy was far enough along that you would know that it was a miscarriage, it wasn't for the most part seen as like a huge problem just because, right, like 20% of all pregnancies do end in miscarriage. So if you're having, like nowadays, right, if you're having like one or two kids, you may never experience that. Versus, you know, if you're having a kid, if you're getting pregnant every two or three years, everyone you know has experienced this and you've experienced this. And it's this much more like accepted and normalized thing. And it wasn't really seen as a problem unless this was, you know, repeated miscarriage over and over again. Um, yeah, like more know. than twice in a row. Yeah, yeah, because then it becomes a question of okay, are you able to have children at all, or are you able to have more yeah. children? Like, what is going on? Um, so, for the most part, I mean, you know, up until probably two hundred years ago, if not even more recently, the pregnancy in general was just treated as kind of kind of regarded as tenuous you know like it was sort of this you wouldn't get super emotionally invested in it right away just because you're like well until quickening which is when the baby starts moving you're like i don't know if this is really going to come to fruition i don't know if this is actually going to result in in a viable pregnancy so i don't want to get too you know, um, too involved in it just yet. Which, I mean, is not to say that people never saw fetuses as children. Um, They definitely did, especially later in pregnancy. Um, You look at the Middle Ages, um, over the course of the Middle Ages, the church, like, increasingly was telling people that infant baptism was necessary. So you have more and more concern as the Middle Ages go on about what happens to my stillborn child, what happens to my miscarried child. Um, So there's actually archeological evidence where um, there was excavation of a church in Southern France and they found that in the sixth century, um, miscarried and stillborn babies, which you know that they are miscarried or were stillborn because of how small basically the skeletons are and the remains. Um, in the sixth century, they were buried quite far away from mm-hmm. the churchyard in their own kind of portioned off area. But by the 11th century, they were actually being buried right up against the church. And they were actually buried in in an area where the rain from the church's roof would hit the graves um, when when it was raining out. So there was this idea of, you know, okay, are the these children could not be baptized, but they are going to still have this, like, holy water adjacent yeah. water on them, and they will be buried in, you know, 
as close to the church as possible to kind of protect them and keep them safe. And um, there's also the fact that if a pregnant woman was assaulted and it caused her to lose the child, um, there were actually legal, Mm -hmm. like there would have been legal recourse depending on the situation. We see this um, in the Bible that if a pregnant woman is, um, you know, if she's, assaulted and loses the child then uh, she and her husband are owed financial compensation by the person who hit her Um, and by the middle ages there were actually women who would prosecute for homicide if they were harmed and then lost the baby Um, and while these lawsuits didn't often succeed they were still allowed to come to trial by um by by the court which does suggest that you know this was taken seriously um and seen as something that okay yeah you attacked a pregnant woman she lost her child we will hear in court what what your punishment should be for this so you know there is the the issue of their legal and spiritual status of you know, a fully formed late-term fetus. There definitely was not this ambiguity when it came to, like, you know, early stages. But, you know, once they were in the late stages, there was definitely a... a a more more consideration given to this. So, for example, um, pregnant women who were past... Mm -hmm quickening stage so again when the baby was moving could not be put to death um, until she had given birth whereas a woman who was quote young with child or quote barely with child meaning that she was in the early stages of pregnancy was not exempt from execution so there was definitely a understanding of okay quickening is when it changes from you know, just a a potential person to an actual, <laughs> yeah. at least almost person, if that makes sense. Um, you know, and there are different, just because there were different ideas of, you know, when does it kind of start to count? Um, so a lot of the time, once it moved was, right. the, the belief was that that was when the soul entered the body. So that meant that Okay, now we actually do have to give it some legal consideration. And I think as we move into the early modern period and, you know, so early modern Europe and also at that point colonial Mm -hmm. um, U.S. and Canada, basically, because you're getting those first waves of Europeans coming over, um, there was still very much... Mm-hmm. Like, humoral medicine was the order of the day. So, again, the other thing is that a lot of the time, women who had miscarriages would not, likely would not have even realized that it was a miscarriage because we're talking about, right, a system of medicine that thinks about the body as being you know, needing to have an equilibrium between the four humors. So, right, in the early stages of pregnancy, you 
you know, you just feel kind of sickly, you feel nauseous, you feel unwell, and then suddenly, you know, you um, you have a really heavy period with a lot of blood, they think, oh, okay, yeah. well, your body has purged the bad humors, and now you're well again. So I think that's the other big thing to remember is that when it comes to fertility and infertility in this time period, there's... Uh, again, there's not, um, yeah. it, it's not this exact science, right? Like you can't pee on the stick and get one line or two lines. Um, you know, obviously once a woman had had a few kids, she would know, oh, okay, I know that this is, um, these are the symptoms I get, right? But it, yeah, exactly. Like in the first few times you're like, I don't know, like I just suddenly feel really nauseated and tired, which uh, again, in <laughs> yeah. the pre-modern world, that could just mean that you ate something that had gone off. That could yeah. mean that you'd gotten, you know, a, a bad stomach bug. So it's, again, kind of a, an issue there. And I think the other thing to remember is that, right, on one hand, childbearing was this very celebrated thing for women, right? That you were fruitful, that you were fertile, that it meant that you were healthy and hearty and, you know, able to do your job as a woman. But I think the other thing we have to remember is that, right, like, even if you are this, like, hearty, sturdy person, right. having baby after baby is going to take its toll on you. And in a lot of cases, an early miscarriage was, and by early, I just mean like before really the third trimester, um, you know, was in some cases seen as a bit of a relief. Like it was seen as, oh, okay, well, you know, yeah. that's one less pregnancy and childbirth to go through. Um, an example from, uh, the myth of the perfect, sorry, um, as an example from the myth of the perfect pregnancy, which is we'll link below, We've got a lot of information for this episode. Um, Abigail Adams wrote to her sister about their mutual friend, Anna Greenleaf Cranch, who suffered a miscarriage in 1800 after giving birth to her first three children in quick succession in 1796, 1797, and 1799. And the letter said, quote, she, poor thing, has had a mishap. That's one of the other words they would use for miscarriage. I rather think it good than ill luck, however, for it is sad slavery to have children as fast as she has. She has recovered, though she is thin and weak. So it's again miscarriage and infertility in that sense or issues with fertility were not necessarily always seen as a bad thing they were in a lot of ways one of the only one of the ways that a woman's right. body could get a break between like back to back to back pregnancy but as we start to enter the 19th century, as, I mean, we see that letters written in 1800, we're entering the early 19th century, there is this shift in 
women starting to want smaller families and men also starting to want smaller families. <laughs> There's a lot of different um, interpretations for why this starts to happen around the 19th century. So uh, basically, by the early 19th century, there was the beginning of the desire for smaller families. And this is really essentially the first time we see this historically of people <laughs> actively en masse saying too good nah you know what D 10 kids 10 kids that's not for me yeah. you know i maybe want like four maybe five you know i don't want <laughs> double digit children anymore there's a whole bunch of you know hypotheses that float around in terms of why this was so um there's everything from industrialization, meaning that kids were, you know, often becoming more expensive rather than being contributors to the family in terms of labor as, you know, more and more things were being bought and it was more and more about having that, you know, working for wages situation. There's the ideas of, you know, these kind of cultural and intellectual movements that were moving away from, you know, the idea of a divinely ordered world, divine right monarchies, etc., and saying, well, okay, if we have agency in government, then we should also have agency over, you know, other things like our fertility and our family planning and that sort of thing. Um, you know, there's the idea that increasing standards of living and having more material goods meant people wanted fewer kids to have to basically spread goods around to because you know before the early 19th century yeah. i mean for most people you everything you owned would have been produced like by you or by someone in like your village um you know obviously through the early modern period there is more and more commerce but you know, it's not really till the early 19th century that we start to see people having yeah. like or a just lot like of any manufactured things. goods. Um, and just, like yeah, every, just like owning things. Everyone that in the family like, being able to sit the down clothes on my back on furniture at the same time was like, wow, yeah. prosperity. <laughs> yeah, that was new. <laughs> We're doing amazing. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, even just the concept of, like, we can have chairs that are comfortable. We can have, like, a, a squishy part on the chair instead of having, yeah. like, a wooden board <laughs> that's yeah. a bench and everyone sits on the one bench. So throughout the 19th century, we see more and more of this, you know, idea of, Hey, you know, I mean, miscarriage, yeah. that's all, that's essentially welcomed in a lot of cases. Yeah. You know, again, so long as you could have some children, miscarriages were completely fine. They're like, eh, one less kid to raise, one less pregnancy, one less labor, which was, I mean, again, we have to remember that every time yeah. you went into labor, that was a life or death situation for you as well. Um but yeah, of course, I mean, during the 19th century, there wasn't 
very much in the way of fertility control otherwise. There was, of course, withdrawal, there was douching, obviously abstinence. Abstinence is the only 100% effective way, kids. Well. (laughs) Almost. Unless the the voice of God comes to you. (laughs) (laughs) Unless you are the Virgin Mary herself. I mean. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, obviously there. And, you know, there were also, over the course of the 19th century, more and more commercialized you know, basically snake oil salesman type stuff um, that they would try to sell you, which we'll talk about more in our birth control episode that's coming out later. But uh, again, for a long time, this was really the, the issue for most women was trying to reduce fertility in the 19th century rather than you know, dealing with infertility, because, I mean, that's the other big thing is that for the most part, if you were infertile, there wasn't really a lot they could do until very recently. It was just sort of thoughts and prayers, uh, (laughs) try to eat healthy, get some sleep. There were different, you know, rituals and herbal medicines that they would have employed in the pre-modern period, which we'll talk about in our bonus content right after this. But yeah, I mean, that is the sad reality was that for the most part, if you weren't able to have a child, that was just how it was. And that's kind of the reality of the situation. However, while this is all happening in the 19th century, where you have, you know, couples saying, you know what, we really want to limit our fertility, we want to have fewer kids, Mm -hmm. you have at the same time this parallel running with medical advice saying, you know, you have to be super, like, you should be taking precautions during your pregnancy, you should be super careful, you can, you know, you can actually control outcomes if you you know, uh, try hard enough. If you do everything right, then you should have, you know, this smooth, easy situation, um, which we'll talk about more in the pregnancy episode. But it's this very interesting time where on one hand, you have families saying, we want to have fewer kids and we want to figure out how to do this but also have the medical establishment saying well actually you can have control over a lot of this if you just eat right and exercise have you tried yoga like so it's this very um Drink this very water. yes have you tried green tea <laughs> so it's it's again it's kind of shifting now to rather than okay if you're infertile that's just like as we talked about before like well that's just god's plan for you or like that's just how it goes and like that's unfortunate but what can you do in the 19th century that's when we start seeing the the inception of this idea that well if you miscarried it's your fault clearly you were did did you go dancing at the saloon did you <laughs> ride a horse? Did you eat 
unwholesome food? Did you go walking in <laughs> in the in the path? How terrible! So there's simultaneously we want to reduce our fertility in the public, but also saying it's all your fault if you have a miscarriage in yeah, and and that really. Um, starts to ramp up in the 20th century, but we're going to hand it over to Margot now to talk about uh, fertility and colonialism. Yeah, to, st- to start off, so I'm mm-hmm. going to, for... How do I phrase this? Okay, so to start off, like, I need to give a, a little bit of context and disclaimers and, like, lay out exactly what I'm going to be talking about because um, for the next couple of episodes um, I'm honing in on like something specific but also kind of broad so anyway that's like we're, we're setting up our parameters here um, yes so again for context so i'm looking mostly at reproduction in indigenous north american societies obviously this isn't like universal experience or universally held beliefs across all of these societies um i'm talking about things that are sort of like generally true um so especially the communities that i'm going to be talking about are um like iroquois and algonquin so east coast uh North Carolina and sort of north, um, but also things that are true generally out on like the prairies as well. So that's sort of where the the basis of this uh, research lies. Um, there are obviously things that are totally different in some communities, but also much like general ideas throughout Europe are the same. General ideas throughout North America you know, you can sort of trace these larger concepts from, like, cultural distribution. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and so and one other thing is that, like, I'm sure when uh, there's there's just going to be when you're talking about something huge like human reproduction, yeah. uh, especially in somewhere like North America that has this like heavy history of colonial colonialization and issues of like marginalized communities, um, obviously what we're saying, you know, like when Sonia talks about fertility and like these broad ideas of fertility or talks about pregnancy or conceptions of childhood or anything like this, this is what we're talking about is the sort of general large like majority culture which for north america in this time period is a colonial yeah culture right so it's like white anglo-saxon yeah. protestant um and so like that's mainly going to be what Sonia's talking about for the next couple of episodes i'm going to mainly talk about indigenous culture ways um and the reason that like we're not going to be getting into like specifics of like the you know american black experience in the south or like you know latino or whatever any all of these other different like 
communities that would have had a different experience from this like very anglo-saxon protestant idea that like Sonia is going to be talking about or has been talking about already or the uh specific indigenous culture ways that like i'm going to be talking about there's just so much going on in the world and like all of the different ways that things can be like very specific if we talked just about like all of the people that are affected by colonialism and capitalist colonialism in particular and how they affected you know like reproduction practices that would be an entire like decades-long podcast thesis library of books in and of itself so this is what i'm specifically focusing on um you know we have this like what in our like literary historiographical context would be the standard north american uh pregnancy or fertility journey um and then i'm going to talk about how colonialism and the introduction of those ideas to uh indigenous communities like affects their practices um so moving on from my like big old historical disclaimer (laughs) woo um i am going to outline some sort of basic ideas that we have to start talking about in this episode and that i'm going to like continue talking about throughout the next few they're going to like be developed but i have to like introduce you to some ideas because um obviously we're coming from a different basis of culture Mm -hmm. than the like euro western society so what like in this context what does like reproduction within indigenous families look like um the major difference from these euro western communities is that a lot specifically in the communities that mm-hmm. i mentioned before um there is a level of matrilineality um it's not like the total reverse of like the patriarchal societies that you know exist in europe but it is like for the purposes of this like the family ties and things like that are going to be matrilineal um so again like this is complicated because so much of our understanding of family in the west exists within this idea of inheritance based on paternity um but most of human history doesn't actually have that kind of idea working through it um but because our current culture is so dominated by it like we have to sort of take a step outside of that to understand some of these things that i'm going to be talking about later um so within that right children join um their mother's clan or family unit or whatever the breakdown of that society is um in most cases um there are some patrilineal societies in like the southwest and stuff but um there's also like systems where like some types of inheritance are through the father and some are through your mother for our purposes like generally speaking a lot of north american societies are set up where you your family ties you get through mainly through your mother right um so and your like 
primary responsible caregivers are mat- like on that matrilineal line. So your mother, her sisters, her mother, your aunts, those were who were responsible for you as a child. And that's where like you would get naming um, and sort of like inheritance rights, um, especially for like personal yeah. property, like housing and uh, like personal goods, things like that. Um, the other thing that we have to sort of outline again is who within a society is responsible for caring for a child um, when we're talking about, you know, we sort of touched on this before when we were talking about pre-modern societies where, you know, it wasn't your family unit was probably not just two parents and their children. It was more of like a whole community. Um that is very, very true in um, indigenous and pre-contact North America. So um, as I get more into like talking about childhood and stuff, we'll talk more about this. But direct parentage was slash is not as important in a lot of societies yeah. as it is in like the West when we talk about like capital W West. Um, so primary caregivers were not, were often aunts, grandmothers, or cousins of some sort. Again, like this yeah, term, very loose definition in historical texts to mean like all sorts of people. So, you know, who even knows what a cousin is? Um, there's also throughout North America, a very complicated system of adoption that was really common. And we'll get into that more in a little bit. Um, and this is really important. Understanding these family ties is really important. Um, one, to understanding how people thought about their own fertility and reproduction, but also to understand why Euro-Western or like white colonists were like, so upset about it (laughs) um and why a lot of the policies that i'm going to be talking about in this episode um are so focused about fertility in indigenous communities um and like why euro western governments were so hell-bent on imposing these nuclear family ideas onto indigenous people uh so yeah, what am I actually talking about <laughs> now that I've spent like half of my time babbling? What are we actually talking about? So uh, we're going to be talking about uh, women's bodies, uh, women for lack of a better term, but um, their control over their bodies in reproduction, um, women in indigenous societies, um, like how women in indigenous societies, as in pre-industrial Europe, controlled reproduction Arguably even more so than in Europe because of how family ties would shake out. Um, Also, women were the healers and, like, learned people who oversaw pregnancy and childbirth, gave advice on conception, and decided who and how um, conception would happen. Um, This was women's business. And like all sort of gendered rules, there were flexibility on this, like men could voice their opinion, but it wasn't really up to them. The choices were not up to men really with anything having to do with reproduction. Um, And also, despite what someone might think looking at historical documents that were written by white colonists, um, 
and because of how these like white colonists understood indigenous family structures um indigenous like despite what you might think from reading those texts um as a rule indigenous north americans were incredibly protective and loving of the children in their communities um you know like how humans are (laughs) um Though, again, to like clarify, the direct paternal or parent relationships um, might not be the most important in a child's life. Um, and like your relationship with a particular child might not, it like your deepest connection to a child might not be one that like came directly from your body. Um, so like the, the idea of like mm-hmm. ownership of children isn't quite the yes. same right you know like there's this idea in the west of like owning your children essentially uh and you don't you don't do that yeah. the, the the society claims ownership of a child right it's like a larger much in the way that we talk about all sorts of other types right. of communal ownership in indigenous north america children fell into that as well um so now that we've got that all set up, what's actually going on with fertility and how does colonialism affect this? Mm-hmm. I've just been through an entire page of notes and like <laughs> I'm not even getting started. Everything is so confusing. Colonialism sucks. Um, but to give us a, a basic rundown if you haven't ever listened to our podcast before you don't know any of our discussions of colonialism before and you're not from north america and you have no idea what's going on Perfect. here is a basic rundown of all of north american history right light background so indigenous people when we're talking about indigenous people of north america they're the people who tens of thousands of years ago mm-hmm. uh crossed the Bering Strait Mm -hmm. from Russia onto the continent of North America, right? Again, all of human history. People start in Africa, move north, move east, cross Asia, cross Russia, right? Cross the Bering Strait, come down into North America, set up shop, living there for like (laughs) thousands and thousands of years. Um, and are, you know, doing people stuff, starting communities, developing technologies, waging war, domesticating plants and animals, just like general human history stuff for thousands of years. The main difference being that there were differing systems of writing down this yep. history. Right. Um, so then there's like the people that were sticking it out in Europe, uh, hanging out. They're developing their societies. Sonia went over this, but then uh, some dudes get in a boat and they're like, we're going to go that way. And they show up in North America and essentially they're like, y'all weren't using this, were you? Because like we want it. Um, And then through a series of like complicated processes end up killing a lot of people. Um, <laughs> this is when Quebec and British North America become a thing um, and eventually we get to the 19th century where we have already fully established right the United States and uh, what is quickly becoming yep. Canada uh, like the independent state of Canada is already Canada but like whatever and basically throughout all of this indigenous people are like WTF mate uh, 
<laughs> and this gets us to uh, treaties and reserves or reservations. Um, and if you're outside of North America, basically what happened was, right, so we have these colonial states set up, and they slowly moving towards the West, well, not so slowly in terms of human history, but moving towards the West are like, you're not really a nation. Uh, you, Your nation is a dependent nation on our state, and we're going to set up a treaty with you, which... If we want to get really into like complicated governmental ideas, treaties in and of themselves can, by basis of definition, only be created between two independent sovereign states. So like whatever implications you want to draw from that. But we're going to set up treaties with you where we basically get all of your land and you get to have this reserve of land for your use where like you can maintain your cultural identity and like life practices and stuff um in this space uh so yeah and it, it it's like obviously more complicated that than that my master's thesis and like an entire like category of history is just about this <laughs> so you know if you're interested in that email me and I'll send you some books. Um, but the basics are that uh, indigenous people were supposedly theoretically supposed to be supported in some degree by the colonial states in exchange for their land. Um, and it were supposed to be able to maintain their culture and whatnot on the reserve. Um, did that actually happen? No. Essentially what happened was white settlers wanted land, they didn't want to pay for the land, and they didn't really want indigenous people to continue to live in the way that they were because it wasn't capitalist, um, and obs Jesus wants us all to be yes. capitalist, so get on the bandwagon. <laughs> Which, again, if you've read the Bible, Jesus hates capitalists. So, yeah. there's that. Yep. <laughs> um, so to get into, like, what does all of this, like, capitalism colonialism reservations what does all this have to do with fertility well now i'm getting to the like real meat of my discussion here what i'm gonna go over here is one the bureau of indian affairs and reservation hospitals two the fertility crisis that resulted from life on the reservation and three state sanctioned forced sterilization campaigns whoa we're getting into the really cheerful uh margo on Baba Yaga yeah. discussion. Um, woo! <laughs> we love it. Colonialism. We're doing. <laughs> anyway, so for my like first section, um, the Bureau of Indian Affairs and Reservation Hospitals. Um, so the real thing about these reserves uh, were that they were part of this broader idea of an assimilation project, right? In the bizarro world of colonialist thought in uh, the early 19th century, um, there were various levels of humanity and where they fit into conceptions of civilization. And essentially, uh, there were ideas about 
how easily a community could eventually become white, essentially, right? So, and indigenous people fell into this realm of eventually, maybe, if we crush their souls enough, they can be civilized, not quite white people, but, you know, quote-unquote civilized. Um, And there were all sorts of, like, weirdo biological things that fell into this that I'll talk about a little bit in this episode, definitely talk about in the next episode, Um, and later on, it's bananas and very, like, tautological it is this way because it's this way kind of weird logic. Um, But part of this assimilation project included the physical and medical control over colonized people. And so the introduction of reservation hospitals um, were part of that. And like, so one of the things is you know, when we talk about like, oh, they started building hospitals on reservations, why would this be controversial or problematic? You know, like, why would a hospital be a problematic idea? Well, part of it is um, we're talking about the 19th century and medicine was not great. Yeah. (laughs) Across the board, just jumping in. Uh, It was not great no matter where you were, but I assume on a reservation hospital, even more so. Yeah, so, I mean, we can get into, and we probably will get into throughout this season as well, and you can go back um, to a few of our other episodes where we talk about um, colonization, but there is a complex history with Indigenous North Americans and one western diseases and two western medicine so the the concepts of medicine in north america were very different mostly because uh, a lot of the communicable diseases that spread between people like didn't exist in north america because there wasn't um a close relationship between humans and a variety of large domesticated animals that is where we get a yeah, lot of our like in the diseases, old world right? so, so europe africa asia lots of communicable diseases because yeah. all three continents there had a lot of yeah cattle chickens, pigs sheep goats, yeah shit that live in your house and then you get you know yeah, swine exactly. flu or whatever um those things and, uh, you know, large cities create contaminated water sources. There's like all of these things of like how animals and humans create plagues. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially. And those kinds of diseases, there were diseases and there were illnesses in North America. A lot of them were like bacterial infections, um, things that could literally actually be treated by like sweat lodges and herbal remedies and things where it was like if you get your fever high enough you can kill this bacteria and and so that's why it for the diseases that historically existed in north america indigenous medicine was actually really effective um now these other diseases that were introduced were just like death sentences it was awful um and also western medicine didn't have a lot 
of understanding of actually how to treat these things, like under yeah. germ theory. Uh, when these hospitals were introduced, still had you know seventy years <laughs> to to for us to get to like basic germ theory. So there's that. Um, there's also ideas in in these colonial hospitals um, about just like conceptions of who and how people feel pain, who can feel pain, how it's felt. It's just the the hospitals were not fun and often torturous and often uh, you were specifically designed to undermine uh, cultural and religious belief systems within the communities through medical care, which is just like yeah, not okay, right? Um, but again, like when we're when we're talking about the nineteenth century, we're talking about this period of the medicalization of childbirth. So before this period, um, even in these Euro Western communities, um, childbirth was overseen by midwives. Um, but during the nineteenth century, uh, there is a, a sort of institutionalization of medicine. You have medical colleges and that are granting degrees for doctors, right? And um, they start thinking that these men with these degrees know just literally everything about the human body, and that includes women's health, um, even though they didn't have any idea about women's health. And wealthy white women in particular started um, calling doctors for their pregnancies instead of midwives. And for about 70 years, um, the maternal mortality and morbidity actually increased radically. Um, as like white women, um, white middle class women especially, turned to doctors instead of midwives. Fun uh, fact: in North America. a big part so, of that was because before you'd have midwives who, you know, they were just doing regular household stuff, and then when it was time to deliver a baby, you'd deliver a baby. Uh, whereas doctors yeah. would go straight from like doing surgery or doing an autopsy. And then not wash their filthy hands and go deliver a baby. And yeah. then... They also like wanted to use tools, yeah. forceps. They were like inserting things into women for no reason and like introducing all sorts of... Yeah, and then any time throughout the 19th century when people were like, Hey, maybe you should, I don't know, wash your hands, sterilize things. All the doctors were like, how dare you suggest that my hands are not clean after I've touched a dead body. Like, I don't know, man. That was <laughs> that's always the fun, yeah. the fun uh, part of all this. So, Yeah, so, right, this is going on in the 19th century in, you know, this Euro-Western culture. Um, and so... Like these colonists, these colonial states really want to introduce this to indigenous people. Um, and there's like a few things going on here and that we will again talk about uh, in more details later. Um, but 
like what is what does this like introduction of hospitals mean specifically for uh indigenous communities on reservations um so one is that part of this motivation in getting people indigenous people to have their childbirths at hospitals is to increase male control over women's childbearing mm-hmm. decisions um this is one of those weird like you really have to make some giant leaps of logic to get to where these people were operating from but um part of this move was by the bureau of indian affairs to convince men that they needed to be part of a european style head of household nuclear family right and and part of the way that they were going to do that was by insisting that men be part of this like childbearing process and have like control over this childbearing process so that um they could they could claim paternal like status right so if they if they get married and then have this kid that they have like already claimed from the time the pregnancy starts and then go to the hospital with their wife then they can claim definite paternity over this child and then that child from the time that they're born theoretically has the right to a land allotment on this reservation the man then would be in charge of that land allotment and so like there's this whole thing about like if you have this childbirth controlled by these men then um the men will be more interested in the child and the like paternity so that they can get control of a larger like parcel of land so that they'll have their allotment they'll also have their children's allotment um and like that was going to introduce like civilization um there's also this bizarro idea that the more civilized a community is the more dangerous and painful childbirth is um and so there's this idea that as people on reservations became more assimilated the more dangerous childbirth would be and so they would need to be at a hospital um again this then ties into the risk and danger of being in a hospital at all because depending on where you're coming from either on the reservation or if you're coming from another reservation to that reservation's hospital um the doctor's ideas about your community could literally endanger your life um because they would disregard pain disregard you know like health signals that your body would be giving um because like oh, well, you're from, like, this nation, and that nation is more, like, uncivilized, and so they're more animalistic. Um, I'm going to talk more about, like, sort of why this idea exists when we get to the pregnancy episode, Um, but obviously this isn't true. Like, all humans have complicated pregnancies because we've got big, dumb brains and tiny, tiny pelvises. I love being bipedal. Uh, This was definitely a great decision. It was an awful decision. If we want big, giant brains, we need to have, you know, big, giant, quadrupedal hips like every other 
animal. We've got big, dumb brains. They don't fit through our pelvis. That's why babies are useless for like 10 years. Yeah. I mean, it's just, anyway. I mean, I will, <laughs> what you're saying here is centaurs are peak performance. You might not like it, yeah, but that basically. is what it looks like. <laughs> Essentially. So, so basically what I'm getting there is for our first point about fertility uh, in indigenous communities in the 19th century, hospital birth was a way of assimilating people into Euro-Western culture from birth and a way of getting people to trust the medical system, which was one of the ways of getting people to trust the larger colonial system, right? It's a... Yeah. Bad. <laughs> um. So the other thing that we can talk about in terms of fertility um, amongst indigenous people uh, during this period is the during the there's a, a fertility crisis among um, almost all indigenous communities um, from the 19th to early 20th century. Um, this section of my talk here of the podcast is going to be especially true in the west um like in canada the prairies um the uh like southwest in the united states um moving on to reserves was just all around not a good time um if you're anybody's familiar with the history of cherokee um, this process was called the Trail of Tears. So when uh, people were forced to walk with no provisions in the middle of winter from North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia area to Oklahoma, and thousands of people died, uh, that's one of the examples of this move onto reservation lands. Um, it was horrifying and this whole assimilation project was deeply inhuman um and part of the reason for the reservation project as part of this larger assimilation project was one to take people from the land so they like especially the decent parts of their land to give it to white homesteaders um the other reason was to physically remove people from their way of life. Um, so if you remove people from the land that they've been living on for centuries and developed a relationship for thousands of years with, you know, if you remove people from that space, their ability to support themselves from the land uh, is obviously going to be screwed up. Um, and this was done yeah. purposefully. Um, and so when we talk about this, you know, we wonder why would anybody agree to like live on these reserves if they were familiar with the land and knew that this was not a good place to live? Um, especially if you're looking at the, the prairies, the choice was often for the leaders of these communities between moving to reserves and trusting the governments of the United States and Canada to provide uh, capital and provide food and uh, resources or try and maintain their land while fighting off these colonial states and 
also like maintaining living off of more and more dwindling resources part of the um the the colonial project in north america was to literally kill off resources that people lived off of so like purposefully killing all of the bison um the u.s really made a rampage of that canada not so much about the bison but there is a a really fun story from the 1950s about shooting sled dogs so yeah. check that one out yeah if you want to um yeah. so if it, you want to know about that this is uh, uh look up the book uh the right to be cold it goes through a lot of a lot of this yeah it's a it is by sheila watt and it uh yeah it, it's a it's an incredible book so it, it talks about the sled dogs among yes. other atrocities. <laughs> yeah, it's um, yeah, it's it's horrifying. So so especially like on the prairies, um, if we're looking at like the Sioux, Crow, uh, Lakota nations, um, these were communities that lived off of the bison hunt among other things but like that was a a sort of foundational food and textiles resource and uh you get bones to the american army Mm -hmm. right the union army at this time uh was riding through the prairies just killing all of the bison all those buffaloes and just piling up and setting them on fire to like run the bison into extinction so that people could not use them to like survive. Uh, so that's a thing. So these leaders were choosing between um, definite starvation on their like while trying to protect their like standard boundaries of their homeland or moving to these reserves and getting annuities and commodities from the states of the u.s and canada um like if they did this um the problem is that the u.s and canada didn't want to actually spend any money on any of this stuff um especially in the u.s so uh the people who are moving onto these reservations were not provided adequate shelter if they were provided any sort of shelter um they were often moved to parts of the country where like you couldn't live without like pre-existing shelters structures right so like moving to the middle of manitoba like just not a good time um so there were a lot of people who especially in these early years were dying of um exposure or exposure related illnesses or you know illnesses that were compounded by exposure um a lot a lot of children and infants died from pneumonia um yeah so that that in and of itself is an issue for maternal and infant uh, morbidity and mortality. Um, But what you can add to that is extreme starvation situations. Um, So like because the colonial states weren't sending enough food 
and they had put people onto like the worst parts of land so they couldn't really farm for like providing themselves food um they were really dependent on the states providing food um and what happens when you're starving is that your body tries to keep you alive rather than your entire species and uh women's bodies especially did you you stop putting energy toward reproduction um you stop menstruating you like just you cannot get pregnant so there's there's those sort of fertility issues but also if you did get pregnant um the likelihood of having a a live birth falls dramatically there's actually like a really horrifying um there's a really horrifying discussion of um the effects of starvation on inuit culture communities in canada where um they did like a they did like a um a study of like nutritional standards in the communities and almost all yeah. of the children were severely malnourished and had like severe vitamin deficiencies that were uh really affecting how their brains were developing and almost all of the mothers were also um severely malnourished so these things just living on the reservation um which was in and of itself a desperate attempt to survive and to keep the nation alive uh was causing a fertility crisis so there's that and then we can get into our final super fun topic which was the uh yeah. state sanctioned forced sterilization campaigns and this is its own whole special can of worms um and i'm going to have to go back to our like uh you know waspy culture explanation for a minute just in case everybody here isn't uh, totally up to date on the early 20th century and how uh, they were just super into eugenics. Uh, they had really strange and frankly dangerous ideas about genetics and what could be passed genetically um, from generation to generation. And eugenics was understood to just be like good medicine like it was just standard medical practice um yeah i mean basically they saw oh i can selectively breed my like dogs and horses to be you know look uh, the way i want them to and behave the way i want them to yeah what if we did that that with the human population Um, so, so what's happening at this great. period, right? The turn of the 20th century is in Not, North America yeah. talked about as the progressive era. Um, so you're coming out of this radical change in how all of the Western world exists with industrialization. Um, and that is a shift from 
societies based around agriculture to societies based around industrial wage labor. This creates a whole new system of wealth and poverty inequity. And it's like a bad time was had by all. And so there's a bunch of people who are like, let's fix this. Um, and they were known as the progressive. So like, how are we going to fix this horrifying poverty? How are we going to fix, um, this destitution that we're seeing all around us? How are we going to like make better lives for these like children and shit? Um, and basically what these, uh, middle and bourgeoisie classes come up with as a way to fix this, uh, were mostly really bad. Um, there were, a couple of good ones, looking at you, Uncle Carl, <laughs> but most of them were were real bad. And basically, the the framework of the idea of most of progressivism was that uh, poor people were poor not because of systemic disenfranchisement and proletarization, but because they were genetically inferior to rich people. <laughs> Just like, yep, definitely. It, it's definitely not because you're paying them like 10 cents a day to work 16 hours in your factory. Yeah. No, no, that's not why they're poor. They're poor because, you know, they have just, it's just, and we haven't been through centuries be of privatization and, you know, destruction of like common agricultural lands for the sake of capital no none of this is none of this is true it's just they're genetically inferior anyway so the outcome of this idea is that right um poor people shouldn't be allowed to have children and we're gonna talk about in a little bit um how some of these in some really insidious ways this idea has stuck around um we're gonna talk about that at the very end of this episode so yeah, so right, the this assimilationist colonial project depends on separating indigenous women from their land, from their power, and from their future, also known as their children, right? Think, have we sufficiently yeah. laid that idea out, do you think? Should I do I need to clarify that in any way? I think so. Right. You have to remove people no, from think, their, their land about, so look, that you can control them, so that you can reshape how they're living, and you can't uh give them any sort of power or choice or connection to their children. Uh, we're going to get into this later when we're talking about education, but um, if you just, yeah, if you destroy schools, but, a connection yeah. between parents and children, um, that functionally destroys a culture, destroys a language. Uh, this is a huge, big topic in colonialism um, all throughout north america um in so many different marginalized communities so this is genocide 101 like if you can't you know it it, it, that's take people put them somewhere else then take their kids put them somewhere else and also and you can change all sorts of cultural conceptions anyway so um before i go really into this topic i want to be clear that canada and very few states in the u.s um had actual legalized sterilization campaigns um like they it wasn't it wasn't like officially legislated right um there were just a a couple of u.s states that had 
um, legislated sterilization campaigns, and uh, Canada did not as a rule, but it was in the best interest of like the state, you know, to allow these campaigns to be carried out by eugenicist doctors. Um, and this is sort of especially in the case of Canada, because part of the selling point of their treaties, especially the numbered treaties out in the West, um, was that the first nations would be given annuities in perpetuity rather than for 50 years, which was the standard case for the Western treaties in the US. So, yeah. right, essentially that means that everyone forever who is a member of these First Nations gets an annuity payment for the land that the state of Canada uses. Um, and so, like, right, it's 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 in the best interest of the state then to allow there to be as few people who can claim a right to those annuities as possible. Um, so that's like a basic messed up thing to think about. Um, so that's what when I talk about like state sanctioned, it's not like legislatively like they've gone out and written a law that says like indigenous women need to be forcibly sterilized, but it's in the best interest of the state and the state does nothing to undermine these practices. They, they actively encourage them. Um, while at sometimes at the same time saying that they're, they're not, especially when we get into the post world war two era, um, where we've decided that genocide is bad. Um, except for if it's, you know, way up North or way out West. um so essentially what we have happen in north america um basically in the in the u.s and canada is a systemic process of labeling indigenous women as mentally incompetent and making them wards of the state um so because of how the reservations work right um there was like a lot of bureaucratic oversight of the daily lives of indigenous people. And so what they would do is have these quote unquote Indian agents, right? That's what they were literally called. Go into like people's homes and lives essentially. And for a multitude of reasons, declare somebody mentally incompetent. Um, And what happens then is because they're an indigenous person they don't become like the wards of their next of kin they become wards of the state and um a a few things end up happening then so the first for the purposes of this pod is that they're usually surgically sterilized right um if you're a ward of the state and you're it's determined that you're mentally incompetent uh Medical practice at the time states that uh, mental, quote unquote, mentally inferior people should not be allowed to have children and pass on uh, those mentally inferior qualities. Now, the issue is that a majority of these people weren't. I mean, one, the issue is that the, that's wrong, right? You shouldn't be forcibly sterilizing yeah. people for any reason but um also 
a lot of these people were not in any way uh, disabled, right? Um, so even yeah. that like basic justification is is not true. They were victims of a state trying to justify taking away their rights. And the other thing that happened, so right, this person would be surgically sterilized, and then their assets and land rights would be turned over to a trust um, or to their, like, the the person who's holding them as a ward. Um, and often they would be those assets would be sold by that person, um, by that trust, and the proceeds would be kept either by that person or, in the case of Canada, by the state. Um, if you want to look into a super screwed up evidence of these practices, check out a book called um, Killers of the Flower Moon. Um, it's written by a journalist who did um, this historical research into a an entire system that happened in the 1920s and 30s of systematically murdering Osage people for their land titles and their oil rights. That is absolutely enraging. And the way that this happened, right, was that, again, people would be declared mentally unfit or incompetent for whatever reason, or morally unfit even, like, um, and they would be put into this guardianship, and then the guardian would kill them and inherit their mineral rights because the the osage land that they received in their reservation um was sitting on top of like this massive oil well um it's an absolutely enraging book and there's documentary evidence of the entire uh u.s governmental system overseeing indigenous rights being a part of it it is oh boy just just murder just murder it's real bad. Um, but this also happened, again, without the outright murder. Um, so sterilization was viewed as a method of reducing the number of impoverished or dependent people that the government would need to provide assistance. And this was seen as like a, a good thing in this period. Like, oh, well, if there's just like fewer poor people, like, it's not that people are poor because of systematic oppression or because there's like a problem in the way that like capital and economy works it's just because uh, poor people are bad um and so like we should sterilize them so that they can't make more poor people um and this happened to all sorts of marginalized people across north america um black women uh, disabled people, people on welfare, uh, people who would now be categorized or post-World uh, War II be categorized as being on the autism spectrum like me, all of that, it went on well into the 1970s. Um, but, and this happened like across, uh, across the globe in Europe as well, it was going on, um, but it was especially prominent in the US and Canada. And the percentage of sterilizations that we have recorded um, that are of questionable consent and where indigenous women is frankly staggering in some places in the north. And when we say the north, we mean like up north in Canada. So like uh, Northwest Territories, Yukon, yeah, like Yukon uh, the yeah. Nunavut, Nunavut. What is now none of that? All of that. Um, 
Yeah, it's we're looking at 60 to 70% of all recorded surgical sterilizations, which at some times were up to 30% of the entire population. So already small populations, 30% of the people are being sterilized, and 60 to 70% of those people who are being sterilized, it's of, of questionable consent. And in the 1970s, there was an investigation um, by some investigative journalists as to whether or not these the women and some men who are also being sterilized were even being informed of the medical procedures in a language that they understood. Um, so a, there's a question of whether or not a lot of these people spoke English well enough to understand what was happening to them, um, because a lot of these doctors were English Canadians. So they're going into communities where people uh, spoke either an indigenous language or French, telling them everything in English, and then forcing consent. This is a an ongoing problem as well. Um, this is still happening to indigenous women in North America. It's also a huge problem um, in places like specifically France and Italy, uh, parts of Spain with Roma and women of color. Um, and there is a... Um, Amnesty International and Human Rights Council paper uh, that goes into this, but also talks about all sorts of other uh, gross violations of human rights um, of w pregnant and or uh, birthing women um, and these like forced sterilizations. And so what we have, and I think Sonia's going to talk about for a little bit, um, is as we get to the 20th century and these uh, medical procedures are like created and become more and more complicated, more and more commonplace and more and more uh, safe. So we have one medical sterilization, which, you know, lots of people choose to do, but also um, medical abortions, surgical abortions. Um, the idea of being pregnant or becoming pregnant, it becomes a, a choice. You're choosing to be pregnant. Um, and obviously, when we talk about this and we talk about these forced sterilizations, that is a choice that has been forcibly taken from a lot of women in a literal physical sense. They can no longer choose to be pregnant. Um, and that has caused a crisis in and of itself among indigenous communities, um, as you need, like, actual people to exist in order to maintain a culture and nation. And we'll talk more about um, the genocide against indigenous North Americans in our episode about residential schools. But uh, in a very real sense, this choice is also taken from a huge class of women of varying um, ethnic and national backgrounds because capitalism is garbage. Um, and I have a quote from one of the uh, articles that I'll cite in our um, on the website when we do our uh, bibliographies um, that says, so the contemporary, quote, the contemporary language of choice promises dignity and reproductive autonomy to women with resources. For women without, the language of choice is a taunt and a threat. Women who can't afford to be mothers are not fit to be mothers. Essentially, this is that same thing that I was talking about with the sort of fucked up parts of the progressive movement. I'm not supposed to curse, with the messed up parts of the progressive movement, um, is that you shouldn't have kids if you're poor. And if you're poor, it's your fault that you're poor. Um, 
right? There's like, there's something wrong with you. Why didn't you just get a job? Why didn't you just do this? And like, why would you have children if you are impoverished? So like, there's this idea that like, if poor people just don't have kids then there won't be any poor children. Um, but that's not one that's that's not how our economic system yeah it, is one set it's just up. like super messed like. up um but so like we have a, a, a few things that like i want to sort of take away from this episode and our next view about reproduction that i'll i'm going to continue making these cases but one is that our idea about what it means to be pregnant has changed drastically over time right our relationship our emotional relationship with the state of pregnancy and of our own fertility has changed and maybe not for the better right we've talked about how dangerous the medicalization of childbirth has made things i'm going to talk a lot more about the, the safety of pregnancy in the next episode we're going to talk to an actual midwife about this as well um but like this idea of of when being pregnant is a connection to a next a, a like new life uh is not necessarily like the most healthy at its current stage and uh sonia's pick for the book club is all about this so join the patreon so that you can join our book club uh and like be on the discord about that discussion um, group yeah and then my points two through like 900 that is that i really want to make this this the point that these questions about reproduction and fertility are and have been for centuries questions of political liberation in the face of capitalistic colonialism, um, that we should be looking at the questions of bodily autonomy and the way that people are expected to raise children and the policy that governments create with regard to these practices through a lens of colonial understanding and capital understanding, um, and that we need a we need to see, right? We need to see that our system is trying to maintain itself and to replicate itself and that um, it's not a, a system that was designed for the benefit of actual people. And we need to figure out, you know, going forward as a collective, um, we have to figure out how to design a system in which there is real choice about your body, about your family, and about your role in your community and the protection of your language and culture, especially with regards to indigenous and first nations people, but also all marginalized people, also all people. Um, reproductive rights extend far past, um, just actually giving birth or not giving birth far past just being pregnant or not being pregnant. Um, or having sex or not having sex. And again, like with all of our episodes, capitalism is the problem. <laughs> Cap capitalism's the problem. Welcome back to the Bobby Aga Project. Welcome back to the Bobby Aga Project. We are just analyst <laughs> propaganda disguised as a history podcast. <laughs> I mean, listen, it's not our fault that all the Point facts... Two. To maybe capitalism isn't the yeah. best plan for like human well-being. Anyway, back to I now have some super <laughs> cheery stuff to round this out in Ooh. the 20th century. So, you know, as as we've talked about, fertility, infertility, etc. By the 20th century, it's really ramped up with people wanting their, you know, 
standard nuclear family, especially post-war, where, you know, again, you want a handful of kids, not a dozen kids. So, you know, even in that atmosphere, like, even up through the 40s and 50s, and like, a miscarriage or two is treated quite casually by physicians, by young women, as long as you could have some kids, it was fine. But at that point, we do start to see more medical and psychological attention being paid to miscarriage. Um, So psychiatrists started suggesting that, quote, women who repeatedly miscarried were losing their pregnancies because they were neurotic and carried unconscious animosity towards pregnancy and motherhood. It has nothing to do with the fact that, like, a majority of pregnancies are made up of genetically unviable material. Yeah, no, it definitely has nothing to do with the fact that, like, a a solid percentage of pregnancies just fail through nobody's fault. However, physicians at least tried to do something useful and uh, tried to develop drug remedies for miscarriage through... These were prescribed to pregnant women in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Um, One that was uh, very much... Uh, very commonly prescribed was DES, uh, which is diethyl stilbestrol. Um, this was prescribed routinely, and it was only later that they realized that the women who were taking this, um, it actually put the children at higher risk for um, like birth defects, and it also uh, was linked to cancer. So. Uh, Again, an attempt was made, but it's still very much a uh, we don't actually know what we're doing what's situation. The, what's the other one that was uh, really prominently used in, in Canada? The uh, thalidomide. Thalidomide, right? Yeah, check out the, the movie. F- check out the movie Scanners. Yeah, no, that one <laughs> for uh, the allegorical of- tale of. Yeah, that was another one. Thalidomide was more widely spread in, I don't think it was used in the US, it was Canada and Europe used that one. And yeah, basically the kids would be born with like flippers rather than like hands and feet and arms and legs. So uh, again, it was these kind of crude early attempts at fertility treatment, basically. But then once you start getting into the 70s and 80s, we see another shift because we will be talking about, um, you know, chemical and surgical, like uh, abortion, basically like uh, historically abortion was often used interchangeably with miscarriage. Like it just literally was referred to as the abortion of the pregnancy. Um, But when we're talking about like, making the decision to have an abortion that becomes much more surgical abortion yes yes that um happens you know with roe v wade in the states we have in the 80s in canada it becomes i mean at to this day there are no laws on the books in canada regulating abortion because it's just treated they basically the TLDR in the 80s, there was a big fight about it, and then everyone said, why don't we just table this one? And then we never, we've, we've all just been like, we'll avoid that like the plague. So, you know, it's just treated like any other medical procedure. 
because it's a why? medical procedure. It's a medical procedure. Um, <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Uh, but after that point, right, like, it becomes much more, like, it enters the public consciousness much more this idea that, well, if you're pregnant, you're making an active choice to be pregnant, right? It's not, um, it's not just, like, a natural part of your life cycle that's, like, part of being an adult who has who is having sex like that's you know it instead becomes this like oh if you're pregnant you have consciously made a choice to continue that pregnancy however there is also the issue basically as soon as this gets as soon as these laws get passed you immediately get pushback and it, we, as we see today, particularly in the U.S., there are ongoing, you know, attempts to limit or uh, just stop women from being allowed to choose abortion, just in general. And another big thing that comes about in the 60s and 70s is couples wanting, actively seeking out yeah. sterilization. Um, It's mostly white, middle class or wealthier people who have, you know, enough disposable income to pay for an elective surgery to either get a vasectomy for a man or a tubule ligation for a woman. And essentially, in a lot of cases, this is actually strictly regulated and doctors will refuse to carry out these procedures. They'll say, well, you're too young, or, you know, if you're a woman, you need your husband's permission, or you don't have enough children yet. Um, There were the 120 rule, where it's like, your age multiplied by the number of children you have had to be 120 (laughs) or higher before the doctor would do a tubule ligation on you. And it it really does show this kind of stark contrast between on one hand you have you know forced sterilization of marginalized people but you have the choice on the other hand taken away if you are you know quote unquote like mainstream society so like if you're you know, white, have some disposable income, they're like, no, no, we need you to keep having kids, so you know, we have to make sure that they... So, you know, on one hand, we've talked about um, how indigenous people and marginalized people more generally were often and continue to be forcibly sterilized, and you also have this flip side where people are also being forced to carry pregnancies to term or are being forced to continue being fertile when they very much want to be sterilized. Um, And again, I think it's just, as you said, it's very much about how much control do we really have over our own fertility and how much choice do any of us really have in this matter? And of course, I mean, the other big thing, as we talk about with infertility, is it also doesn't feel like a choice if you, if your body cannot have children. Yeah. Then it's, 
you, you know, it complicates this rhetoric of choice if, you know, you want to have yeah. kids and you can't. So, with that, that's the first episode <laughs> of our new season. We hope you stick around. Follow us on all our social medias. Hop on over and join the Patreon if you want some sweet bonus content about medieval and ancient fertility treatments. Yeah. And, and if you want to we'll hang out with time. us on our, our brand new Discord. That's right. We'll see you all over there. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Bapiaga Project. And as always, thank you to all our patrons for making this project possible. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and her website for the most up-to-date happenings in the project. Also, please consider supporting us on Patreon. It'll really help us continue the project and expand in some really exciting ways. And there's Patreon-exclusive merch! Thanks again, and we'll see you next week!